My guest today is passionate about the delivery of compassionate and effective ABA services across the lifespan. You are in for a treat. Welcome to episode 112 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Corey Whalen. He is a speech language pathologist and a board certified behavior analyst. And he obtained his doctoral degree in behavior analysis at Western New England University under the advisement of Dr. Gregory Hanley. He's worked in a variety of settings and he serves as the director of clinical services for the developmental services and brain injury divisions at VINFEN, a multi state human service agency. Today, we're talking all about the practical, functional, assessment process. So if you are listening in and you are working with students who are engaging in unsafe problem behavior that is a barrier to their learning, so your therapy sessions, your classwork, you're having a hard time and you want to help reach your students, you are going to want to tune on in. We have great information for you today. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks so much for joining us on episode 112 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. We have an amazing episode today. Today, we have with us Dr. Corey Whalen. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on. Of course. Thank you for having me. And I think that I found out about you and your work. I had definitely seen your name and but my friend Nakia Dower, who really is my my mentor, my friend, my cheerleader, best supporter, she's always posting amazing things that that all of us in the field are doing. And you had done a talk about something, and I thought I'm reaching out to him today. That's it. This guy's in my orbit. I need to meet him. And we popped on a pre podcast call, and it it was fun. And I know that we're going to have a good time um, today. So for those of us that are not familiar with you and your work, can you tell us about you and and your journey into the field? It's pretty cool. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it, I should say that without Nakia, I don't know if any of us would know each other because she's instrumental in bringing so many people together. So uh, uh, I'm glad that she brought us together, but she, I, I got the chance to meet her at um, ABAI last year. I was so excited to finally meet her in person. She's she's an excellent resource for, for our community. So, mm-hmm. um, But yeah, so I, I did my undergrad and master's in speech and hearing science down at uh, the George Washington University in DC. Uh, and I loved it. I got a great experience in graduate school, um, getting to work with all different populations, you know, kids with autism, adults with um, acquired brain injury, um, uh, patients with voice disorders. Uh, but I went to work uh, in a school down there in Southeast DC um, for kids with um, disabilities. And uh, pretty quickly realized that my caseload was made up primarily of students with communication disorders, of course, but also uh, ones that engage in some pretty severe problem behavior. And I learned quickly that I uh, I learned two things. One, I loved working with those particular students, Mm -hmm. uh, but also I felt like I didn't quite know enough to be as effective as I I wanted to be. Um, Learned about this thing called uh, behavior analysis and uh, moved up to Boston uh, to take a job at Melmark, New England as a speech pathologist, but kind of with the goal to 
learn more about behavior analysis and go back to school. I, uh, this story will be filled with a lot of luck and, and fortunate events, I think, because I, I probably the most pivotal kind of point in my professional career was uh, around the exact same time that I started at Melmark, so did Dr. Nicole Heal, who's a, a behavior analyst, uh, wonderful clinician, teacher, mentor, and she uh, agreed to uh, supervise my fieldwork hours. Mm-hmm. And so I learned, you know, just a ton from Nicole. I soaked up any information she had and was was just so grateful for her kind of mentorship. Um, did a few different things along the way, became a, a behavior analyst at Melmark. Um, and then a couple of years later, you know, another stroke stroke of luck, I was accepted to Western New England University in the doc program to work with uh, Dr. Greg Hanley. And uh, that was obviously just a phenomenal experience. The faculty at Western New England were incredible. My, the cohort of students I got to work with, um, I did do Raja Raman, Holly Gover, Robin Landa, Kelsey Rupel, Carl LaCroix, these people that were kind of studying this really interesting um, facet of behavior analysis at the time were just uh, really helped me uh, kind of narrow in my focus and what I want to do. And um, I was, I've just felt so fortunate to, to be able to work with them. And along the way too, I got to work with Dr. Alice Schillingsburg and Dr. Sarah Frampton. And so I've had kind of these incredible mentors along the way. Um, and now I, I, I consider myself lucky again, because I just started recently uh, at an organization called VinFen in Massachusetts and Connecticut. And I get to work with a team of really talented behavior analysts who do uh, really hard work with adults with autism, with intellectual disability, with uh, traumatic brain injury, um, a really interesting, difficult work. And um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to be where I am now. That's amazing. And I love that. I definitely have a spot in my heart for working with older learners. My past 10 years before I stepped away from the schools, I worked with middle school and high school age students. So I really love that. And there's such a need for for services for people in that age group. Well, it's just amazing to hear about all the people you've worked with and all the places I'm writing down these all these notes about places um, and people. But you mentioned Dr. Greg Hanley, who if you haven't um, heard of Greg Hanley, I, I think all BCBAs have, but if you're a speech therapist and you haven't, he's really doing just such instrumental work. And I think I learned about his work through the Behavioral Observations podcast, where maybe a lot of people first started to hear about Greg Hanley. And I was like, okay, he's so charismatic. And the things that he was saying were different than you know what I had um, maybe learned about before. And so it was very, very interesting. And I did take, he has a 10-hour course um, on this uh, PFA, that, which we're going to talk about today a bit, just dipping a toe. And I was just so enthralled. I, I really did have FOMO because everybody that I knew that was a BCBA had taken this course. And I was like, well, I need my CEUs and my company will actually pay for this. So I am going to take this course. And it was very, very interesting, very, very good work. So if this is just an introduction to you, um, for you, it will be very enlightening. So can you tell us, and I know this is a, a big question you could probably talk about all day, but can you tell us about practical functional assessment and kind of what it is and give us a working definition and kind of talk us through what this is exactly. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, just before I do so, I, I think one of the most interesting points about Greg's work is that he's kind of this champion of, of compassionate and, and dignified behavior analysis and care. Yeah. Um, 
And really over the past few years, we've, we've looked at it through the lens of trauma, really trauma-informed behavior analysis, right? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of that, uh, the practical functional assessment process is rooted in those, in that, that perspective. So it's good to look at it through that lens, but really kind of simply the, the practical functional assessment or the PFA is just a functional behavior assessment, right? Um, but it's made up of, of some unique components that, that, that make it um, a little bit different, right? Um, the first being that it starts always with what we call an open-ended interview. We, we don't rely on um, those more close-ended checklists or rating scales to understand uh, problem behavior. Uh, what we try to do is, is ask the people or even the, the person engaging in the behavior, mm-hmm. uh, the people that know them really well, kind of what are the typical conditions under which problem behavior tends to occur, what tends to evoke it right, what tends to reinforce it. Um, what are the, the person's favorite things to do? We like to learn a lot about the, the individual before we even get started with our experimental analysis. Um, and really a question we like to ask is, if it weren't for problem behavior, what would you want them to be doing? Or what would they be doing? Or what are some things you've avoided for years because you are too nervous to introduce something that may be challenging and could evoke problem behavior? Um, and so that interview gives us just a ton of really qualitatively rich information uh, which then sets us up for um, our functional analysis. And, 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 you know, another thing that makes it this process a little bit unique is that we're, we're really operating under the uh, assumption that problem behavior is almost always controlled by a mul- multiple or a combination of different things, right? Multiple establishing operations and multiple reinforcers, uh, it, really meaning that the variables that influence problem behavior are are pretty complex and often combined. It's, it's not often just one thing that satisfies uh, problem behavior, right? So an example I give my students all the time is, um, I will engage in what, what my wife would call problem behavior to avoid doing the dishes <laughs> when the Patriots are playing on TV, right? Right. I want to access escape from those dishes in combination with getting to sit on the couch and watch the football game. Now, if the Patriots aren't playing or there's nothing else good on TV and it's my and it's, I got I have to do the dishes, I'll do. Them. There's less. I, I am less motivated to uh, avoid that aversive context because the the synthesis of reinforcers isn't there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's more complex than that for a lot of the individuals we work with. But that's a pretty, I think, a good way to look at it. Mm-hmm. And so we call that analysis, that functional analysis, an interview informed synthesized contingency analysis or ISCA. Uh, which a lot of people uh, may have heard of of, of that term. Um, and then, then another thing that really makes the PFA process unique uh, is that it's meant to be safe. It's meant to be a way to assess and evaluate dangerous problem behavior without ever even the need to see that dangerous behavior. Mm-hmm. Because in that interview, we gather a lot of information about uh, any topography of behavior that may be a part of that same response class. And so if the individual uh, pretty consistently first uh, yells and then maybe, you know, stomps their foot or bangs the desk and then, you know, pushes something off the table and then it escalates to aggression or self-injury, we believe the people that tell us that that, that's how that tends to occur. And so we reinforce those non-dangerous topographies in the analysis. And so, so we never, we almost never need to see or even get to see dangerous behavior in our functional analysis. Um, because we're able to reinforce, you know, early responses in that chain. 
That's great. And I love how you said that you asked people, what have you avoided? Because there are so many people out there that are living that probably are avoiding so many things. I know I was seeing a client who was actually very young and really didn't engage in any unsafe problem behavior. But the the parents were, they didn't come out and say it, but I knew they were afraid to bring him to different places in the community. And they live in my hometown. I, I'm not seeing any more one-on-one clients, but I really loved this family. I kind of miss it. But I would talk with them and, you know, it's my own business. So I'd say like, we could do a session over at the water park or we can, you know, I have this freedom to do this. You're in my same hometown. And I could tell that they were extremely nervous. So I think that's what we don't understand. And especially as learners get older and those behaviors get strengthened, not only is that person's world become so much smaller by where places they're not going, it really is affects the whole family unit. And I'm sure you've seen so many case studies of that happening. And I think if you don't work with students who engage in this severity of behavior, number one, you can't envision it. I, I have. I've worked in non-public programs for 20 years. And number two, you don't really understand the ripple effect that has when people are engaging in it. But also, I'm sure you have so many success stories when you're able to help support the family unit and that person, and now they can go to a family vacation, or now they can go over to grandma and grandpa's house. And I'm sure you have a lot of different stories that you could share where it's absolutely life-changing, this work that you're doing. I think that if you had asked, if we had, if we were having this discussion 10 years ago, as a new behavior analyst, I would have, I would have really had the perspective of... I can't believe this family is reinforcing this stuff, or I can't believe they're out driving around in the car at 2 a.m. Or they 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 never ask their kid to do this particular thing. But like you say, I, I think parents and family members of of people who engage in severe behavior are experts at surviving in those. Like they're in, they're engaging, they're doing all this stuff just to keep a lid on problem behavior to get through the day. And I think if you if your perspective, my perspective has changed to that, and I'm really grateful for that because it. It helps you interact with the family and helps you pull out kind of some of that information, right? Because a lot of times you sit down and ask about what's going on, but people don't even know that they are covering up or keeping mm-hmm. a lid on problem behavior uh, because they're just, they've been doing it for 10 years. They've been doing those routines that keep everybody safe and happy, but not really out in the community well, you know? And so if you if you shift your perspective on these, these parents and these brothers and sisters and grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles are masters at surviving a tough, really tough experience. Um, it helps you interact and helps you learn about their their experience so that you can help them in the long run. That's great. And I think too, just I have three kids of my own. You get so much more perspective when you have your own family, even if you don't have kids or whatever your situation is. You just are, you know, I remember doing home visits. We actually did home visits when I worked at the Cleveland Clinic and we would go after hours. I'm not sure how this all worked, but we would go after hours at, you know, homes and we'd help families that are really struggling with this. Our whole teams would go out and not that you're judging parents, but you it's hard to take that perspective when you're not juggling all those things yourself. You learn so, so much more and just about goal setting and trying to interact with families. And it's it's good. And I'm sure some people probably in that interview process, maybe 
they don't even realize that they're operating in such a way that's maybe not most functional. And or I bet some people might be, although maybe when they got to you, they were probably just like ready to just share everything. I could see some people a little guarded and, you know, we're fine. But sometimes when you get to the the experts, yeah. they're really, you know, doing this work that you probably hear a lot of different stories. So I'm sure yeah. that it could go either way. Yeah. Um, okay, so thank you for that information. Very informative. So who is qualified to conduct such an assessment? Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a great question. Um, I don't have a, I don't have a simple answer. Re- really, anyone who's been sufficiently trained in the process can conduct a, a PFA. And that's, that's um, kind of a credit to the, the practical nature of it. So um, we published a study in 2021 on um, training practitioners to conduct the PFA, and, and the group was pretty diverse. We had some behavior analysts in the in the group. We had special educators. We had classroom assistants, paraprofessionals. Uh, we had some graduate students, some brand new staff who had never worked in behavior analysis before, but um, signed up to participate. Thankfully, that they signed up to participate in our study. Um, and we showed pretty effectively that you can, tr- regardless of credential, if the training is high quality with, um, you know, some interactive uh, learning experiences, some feedback on role plays, um, really anybody can conduct a, a PFA. Now, obviously, the people most often tasked with, with, with conducting functional behavior assessments are behavior analysts. Um, and so there are, that's a great person to look to, to, to if, if you're out here listening, wondering, how do I get someone to do this? Um, behavior analysts are, are trained in functional behavior assessment. And there's great opportunities to, to get trained in the PFA process out there. If you, if you are a behavior analyst looking to learn more, um, you mentioned the 10-hour course through FTF, uh, which is a great uh, place to get started. Uh, but there's also a bunch of communities out there, you know, and, and I like to tell people if you're interested in the process and you're out there looking for a job to, to be a better, you know, to be a behavior analyst or, or um, apply this process, look at the, the people that work at that company and see if there's opportunities for mentorship in it um, for people who may, be, who may have that experience. Um, so the, I guess the short answer is really anybody as long as they're well-trained and well-supported in the process. Okay, that's good. That's wonderful to know. So... Why might we want to conduct a why might we want to conduct a PFA? So if you're a speech therapist and you're listening and and you have students who I'm 100% certain you have students on your caseload who might be engaging in unsafe problem behavior, you know, why might this be good for somebody? Like if somebody goes back to their school team or their clinical team and says, "Hey, I listened to this podcast and this sounds like it'd be perfect for so and so." Uh, you know, so what 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 is going to help us? What are what are we going to get as an end result of conducting the PFA for those that are yeah. new to it? Yeah, well, I, I know. I think um, you brought up a good uh, candidate for a PFA process, right? Someone on your caseload who maybe you're not getting enough traction with. Maybe you know you're making small gains here and there. Uh, they're doing okay in their speech sessions, but they're not quite. Um, they're 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 you know fighting you along the way, and you feel like you could be a little more effective if you if you uh, understood why they were you know engaging in problem behavior. You've got those kids on your case though that, that everybody knows about. Like I could, if I could just crack this op- this case a little bit, I could probably be more effective, right? That's a good candidate for, for a PFA. Another good candidate is you have a brand new referral who engages in problem behavior. You don't know why. So you haven't even gotten started on your interventions yet. Um, a good place to start is, is a behavioral assessment so, you, so that you can set the student up or the client up for 
success in your sessions, right? Um, the reasons why you might do it, or, or, or really the primary reason, is because it gets you to treatment really quickly, right? So the whole point of a PFA isn't to understand why behavior is occurring. That's kind of a byproduct of, of mm -hmm. the process. The whole point is that so we can treat it, so we can teach the individual, you know, more appropriate uh, responses, uh, most often some type of communication skill um, to replace problem behavior. So the real benefit of the PFA is that it gets you to treatment relatively quickly compared to a lot of other types of, of behavioral assessment uh, or gets you kind of back to your typical sessions because the the FBA process or the PFA process tends to take a little bit less time than a traditional, you know, if you're going to collect some, you know, a month long of, of descriptive data uh, that may or may not provide uh, useful information, the PFA uh, is is pretty efficient in terms of how quickly you can get to treatment. And so um, if, if SLPs or OTs or teachers, anybody out there is like, I've got a kid here who um, could do so much more and I know they can, I just need to kind of figure out this this little this step or, or get them, teach them some other skills so that they can are ready to access the learning environment. Um, mm -hmm. That's a great opportunity for a PFA because it won't take a lot of time. It gets you back to your, your inter interventions pretty quickly. So could you kind of walk us through maybe a case study of either somebody you've worked with that might be a traditional kind of this student is engaging and unsafe problem behavior and this is what it looks like and this is what the PFA looks like. And then from that PFA, we were get, you know, now we know to use these strategies. Can you kind of walk us through yep. that? I mean, I took the 10 hour course, so I kind of have an idea of what you're talking about. But for somebody who can't visualize this whole process coming to life, can you kind of walk us through what that would look like? Sure. Yeah. So uh, starts with that interview, right? So you get a let's 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 pretend it's a new it's a new individual you're working with, right? Referred for services because of engaging in in you know severe behavior. Um, interview the people, someone who knows that that uh, student or person really well, and they teach you that you know um, problem behavior tends to occur when we try to take away uh, their favorite toys and ask them to you know, clean up after themselves or come to the table to get started on, on academic instruction, right? Mm -hmm. A pretty common scenario in schools and clinics, in adult programs, everywhere you go, there's, there's always the uh, condition under which you have to stop doing your favorite thing and go do something that you might not be as fun. So after you know, interviewing and understanding uh, you know, the, the hierarchy of problem behavior in terms of what's the uh, least dangerous response that they occur in all the way up to the most concerning. Mm -hmm. I would set up a, a ISCA functional analysis and test that out, right? Uh, make sure that I can turn problem behavior on and off simply by presenting establishing operations that would turn it on and turn it off by presenting those reinforcers, right? So once I've successfully done that and replicated it a few times knowing, um, okay, I, I have some understanding now of these variables that influence problem behavior. I feel like I've got a good place to start treatment because I know they're motivated enough to engage in problem behavior. Now I can use that motivation to teach them to engage in a, a new response, right? And I also feel ready to go into treatment because I, I know the power I have in, in my reinforcement context because that's where, the safe, that's where safety lies, right? I know at any point in my ISCA or when I'm down the line in treatment, if problem behavior starts to escalate, all I need to do is, is provide this synthesis of reinforcers 
in order for it to stop. And I don't need to engage in any type of physical management or get worried that anybody will get hurt. Um, and that's, that's, that's hard for people to do in practice because they think, oh my gosh, I'm reinforcing problem behavior. Mm -hmm. And they're right. You you are, but in the name of safety and dignity, I always make that choice because I can now think, all right, Tomorrow, when I do this exact same session, I, I'm better prepared and I know what to expect. I'd much rather reinforce problem behavior in the moment to prevent dangerous behavior from really occurring than, you know, withhold the reinforcers because I don't want to. I don't want to reinforce that response, right? Um, that that kind of went all over the place. But what I'm trying to say is, after that analysis, you know what's motivating and you know how to turn behavior off, and those are two really important things, right? So the next step is to get into treatment and, and we could talk about, you know, treatment for this forever, but really the main thing we teach, what we do is in our, what we call our skills-based treatment package or process is we teach the learner um, three kind of critical skills to communicate, right? Essentially functional communication training mm-hmm. to tolerate uh, disappointment when that response is not immediately reinforced and then to cooperate with some type of uh, you know, adult-directed instruction uh, during that delay period. So w- after we tell, after the, the, the learner is like, excuse me, uh, I want more time with my stuff, please. And we say, no, buddy, sorry, not right now. They say, okay, that's cool. We say, great. I actually need you to get over to the table, get started on your math. Uh, I'll be there in a minute. And so the learner, we, and we, we do that very slowly, very systematically, right? Mm-hmm. But ultimately what they learn to do is uh, communicate for their reinforcers when they're interrupted, tolerate when uh, that response is not reinforced immediately. And then in that delay period, cooperate with um, some type of instruction. And those instructions that they cooperate with are pulled from the interview because we've learned from the family or from the teachers, well, this is what I really want them to be doing, but problem behaviors in the way. So we really backwards design the treatment all from that kind of initial interaction with the family or the teachers. Um, and, you know, such that it's considered successful when they're doing that stuff, finally, in the absence of problem behavior. Um, so it's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. It's interesting, though. I, I love learning about it. And I do, when you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, I bet this would be hard for certain consultants who are helping implement this in schools. I'm overgeneralizing. But there are always going to be some staff who think that you're reinforcing problem behavior and they can't they can't understand the vision. I, I get it. I've worked yeah. with kids who engage in this said very unsafe behavior. And I think sometimes it's it's probably that training component is probably very key. That's I'll have to look back at that article that you did. Was it about behavioral skills training and training staff and yeah we used we we incorporated BST um uh, in the, in the paper. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and how to kind of teach those. It's almost like, I like when I, when I work with, when I consult the schools in particular on stuff like that, cause there's a lot of rules in school, right? Like that's a, a really hard spot. <laughs> um, I like to remind them of, of it's really, if, if you've got the right values, if, mm-hmm. if, if your values align with the treatment you're trying to do, those choices become a little easier. Right. So when I work with schools, I often say, okay, if your decision now is to withhold reinforcers, and the chances are that you go into some type of restraint or physical management or something dangerous. That's your decision. Your decision is I either reinforce and everything turns off and I live mm-hmm. to talk to my supervisors about it, or I don't reinforce and it escalates to something severe and dangerous. Mm-hmm. 
the choice is always to reinforce and to talk about it with people. And so mm-hmm. fra- reframing it that way in, in, you know, are you willing to not reinforce it at the risk of, of a restraint? Mm-hmm. That really helps get people thinking, oh, it is okay to reinforce problem behavior because it means I don't have to do anything potentially traumatizing, right? Mm-hmm. So um, Absolutely. That's it a is- good it's a different way of thinking about things. I think it's very important though. And I'm wondering too, I, I think what would be so helpful for the PFA, and I'm sure there's a lot of, but school psychologists, usually that's the frontline person. So when you're working in a school and you have a student and they're engaging in unsafe problem behavior, and I live in Cleveland, Ohio, we have a wealth of BCBAs around here and a, and a lot that go into the district. We have some districts who employ their own BCBAs. But I know for some people listening, they probably don't have any behavior support. So I'm sure that there are school psychologists taking the PFA and learning about it. But I feel like that is definitely in the schools, your first line of help and support is that school psychologist and having them help with something like this. But do you think school psychologists, they're probably taking the training for the PFA and things like that? Yeah, I think they are. I I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, because th- they would be a g- great resource too, right? Because they mm-hmm. they approach it from a whole different lens than we do, and could be val- such valuable resources in mm-hmm. the whole process. And and y- y- thinking about what you do after the PFA, the treatment process, so much there's so much room for collaboration there, right? How do mm-hmm. we? What's the communication response? What are the? A lot of times, the 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 things that people want uh, the student to do are things like occupational therapy tasks or cooperating with their physical therapy. Mm-hmm. routines or, or, you know, so there's just so much room for good collaboration in this process and school psychologists could be, um, you know, at the forefront of that. That would, that would be excellent. Interesting. Very cool. Such yeah. great information today. So where can people find out more about you and your work? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, Greg and, and crew kind of maintain a website that's got some really valuable resources for uh, people wanting to learn more about this process. It's uh, practical functional assessment. Uh, .org, I believe, um, or .com, I can't quite remember. And then if you want to find out in, uh, what we're doing over at VinFen, we're at VinFen.org and um, always looking for talented you know, clinicians and uh, graduate students to come help us out with, with what we're doing, which uh, you know, we'd love to have you. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It was great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.